good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this uh, webinar for the Transform Finance Investor Network community on community capital funds as vehicles for wealth and uh, power building. A um, couple of practical notes first, uh, given the usual drama of webinars, if you are joining us from the website or from the platform, you will see that there is a little chat function that would allow you to send a message either to everyone or uh, to Transform Finance directly. You should feel free to write in your comments there. And uh, then we will also open it up at some point for questions from the, from the audience. Um, my name is Andrea Armeni. I'm the uh, Executive Director of Transform Finance and the convener of the Transform Finance Investor Network. And today I will be joined by Nomaka Agbo of Nomaka Agbo Consulting and Jeff Rosen of the Solidago Foundation. We have a couple of very exciting presentations for us on uh, the work that they've been doing on community capital funds. Um, just a couple of quick notes first uh, to contextualize this uh, presentation um, with respect to the, to the work that we've been doing with the uh, Transform Finance Investor Network. Um, why are we talking about this? What is the importance of uh, community capital funds? Um, we have been looking at it from a fairly macro perspective at first in terms of the, the distance of decisions around capital being one of the big parts of the problem that we experience today around uh, finance. If you think of uh, financialization broadly as the as the issue and within the context of financialization at liquidity as a way in which while everybody seeks it as an investor as the holy grail really removes the connection between the underlying investment and uh, and the investor intermediation also something that is uh, very prevalent in uh, um, conventional finance right ultimately ends up putting all these layers where you're separating yourself more and more from uh, from the decision making. So the um, bringing closer the decisions around capital to the communities that are affected by that capital is one of the lenses through which we'll be, we'll be looking at this. Um, and there are several ways in which one can think of capital flowing uh, locally and capital being influenced by local communities, right? It's not just uh, uh, on the aggregation piece, you can think of direct investments where um, local investors might decide to uh, use a local bank or do angel investments in their, uh, in their community. More broadly, activist influence over the flows of capital that happen in communities and something even as uh, uh, removed from most of the day-to-day -day work as uh, municipal finance. So there is a whole broad context of capital being made to flow more locally, right? Moving away a little bit from this trope of uh, Wall Street versus, uh, uh, versus Main Street. But we will look today at uh, this um, more uh, specific topic of capital aggregation through a community capital fund. And this is important in, uh, in various ways. On the one hand, it allows for a bit of a more coordinated influence on the ecosystem, as uh, Nomaka will be um, walking us through shortly. There is a connection between the financial aspect of community capital and the political aspect of uh, community capital. Borrowing from more traditional finance, you can also think about the pooling of the risk, right? Uh, as uh, 
one of the big topics this past year around uh, when you're democratizing impact investing, are you really democratizing the investments or are you democratizing risk? And um, doing it through a, a, an aggregated pool um, can have a meaningful de-risking element to it, which is also supported by the possibility of tranching that risk differently, as we'll see in Jeff's presentation in several of the community capital funds, right? You can create um, different tranches in which the risk is borne by different uh, parties. And more importantly, from our perspective uh, of helping communities reclaim their seat at the table, it can be an onboarding mechanism to get more familiarized with the flows of capital in the, in the community. So the advantage of it is not limited to the capital that is controlled by a specific fund, but it's really this way of owning capital again, right? Uh, owning the decisions that are affecting us and our communities and becoming a lot more directly involved with the flows that we see and the flows that we would like to, to see more. So there are a variety of these um, uh, local capital pools or aggregated capital in the communities from charitable loan funds to more traditional non-charitable designated instruments that can nonetheless be set up as, uh, as community impact driven type of instruments, including community real estate funds, supplemental investment funds, some of the DPOs and Title III ways of uh, raising capital can be grounded in a community. But today we will be focusing specifically on enterprise financing via community funds. And uh, with, uh, with Jeff's presentation, we'll see the, the importance of, uh, of that. So in the broad context of the transformative finance principles that by now for all our members should hopefully be quite uh, familiar, you will see that a, a community capital fund that is grounded in this uh, political uh, conception really seems to hit all three of the, uh, of the underlying principles that we, that we use. The first, the engagement of the community in the design, the governance, and the ownership of the investments that, that affect them, clearly represented here where you have especially the governance element being um, grounded in the, in the community and in the right voices within, uh, within those communities. Um, the principle of adding more value than is extractive or that non-extractiveness notion that we always uh, talk about um, in this context is largely tied to this idea of leakage. So even if you have capital coming into a community from the outside that creates good flow of goods and services, finances, enterprises, Ultimately, if that capital is not localized, there is still an extraction of value uh, on the financial side of the equation out of the community in terms of the returns to the, uh, to the investors. And lastly, again, going back to that uh, tranching idea, balancing the risks and the returns fairly among the stakeholders. So if we're looking at this in the context of uh, economically marginalized communities in particular and communities that have not seen meaningful capital flows under their control, we want to be very mindful of who ultimately bears that risk, something that we have explored with the network in the past uh, around the, um, uh, the issue of, uh, of crowdfunding in communities, for example, and whether they are really the, uh, in the best position to, to bear the risk of some of the investments that they would like to, to see. 
So uh, it, it's great to see that this um, community capital fund approach as one of the ways in which we can really hit all three of these uh, of these principles, and we're seeing more and more activity in this uh, in this area. So in a in a time when uh, a lot of things are not quite going well, this seems to be a decent opportunity to um, start really building the new and rethinking the way in which we want to see and control this uh, this capital. Now, I want to spend just one second on the broader work of Transform Finance that some of you may be less uh, familiar with if you're joining us via the, the investor network, which is a, a community-facing and activist-facing work. Right? If we really want to redefine this relationship between uh, capital and communities, between capital and social justice, one flank of the work is around getting the investors to understand social justice and, uh, and put it in, uh, in practice in their investments. But the other is to support the efforts from the communities, the activists, the local leadership to re-engage with finance, right? It's not an easy thing to ask, especially if one thinks about the, the historical and present trauma of what finance has done in many, in many communities. So really it's important to be able to bring to the community this understanding of what it would look like to intersect with finance, why it makes sense, and what is ultimately the, the technical support that is needed in order to, um, to be able to play this meaningful role and move, uh, as I said, from the protest aspect to the power aspect of, uh, uh, of finance, right? The more you know about how these capital decisions are made, the more you are able to meaningfully lift up your voice and uh, advocate on behalf of the type of flows that your community would uh, would like to see. And that's part of this, uh, this idea of the uh, the pragmatic radicalism that, that, that we have been advancing, right? We need something that is deeply radical as a reconception of the role of finance in, in society, but is also pragmatic in the sense that it recognizes the realities of capital, some of which port over from traditional finance to the alternative version, versions of finance. We mentioned the, um, the, the risk element, for example, right? Uh, being able to, uh, to de-risk investments is something that is as worthwhile for communities under a new approach as it is in uh, traditional finance. Diversification of the investments, uh, um, being mindful of the costs that are associated with, uh, with some of the transactions, uh, uh, some of the impact management that can be done are all things that are part of that pragmatism that needs to be brought to that. And we make a, a meaningful effort to support communities in, uh, um, in reclaiming that space and supporting them from that technical expertise angle as well, in a way that starts from the standpoint that, look, capital and social justice intersect in so many ways. No matter what area of social justice you're interested in, chances are capital deeply affected and generally in negative ways. So you should probably care about this. And there are a series of strategies that you can use to, to engage around uh, capital. So we do this uh, flagship Transform Finance Institute, we call it, which is really an onboarding training for communities that are saying, I recognize more and more the role that finance plays in my communities. I'm now ready to see how I could even engage, how I could even start thinking about some of the strategies, whether it's a matter of holding investors accountable or having earned revenue programs or using the market as a tool for the type of social change that I, uh, uh, that I want to see. And I want to bring up two things that uh, we are just launching now. So um, on top of the traditional, uh, uh, 
Transform Finance Institute for Social Justice Leaders, that onboarding training. We're now launching with the support from the Cerner Foundation six place-based training. So this will be localized knowledge with a local anchor that can uh, uh, help us bring together the right, uh, the right players, especially in communities where normally there is no access to this type of information and where there has been less progress made perhaps in terms of organizing uh, around capital. So we have an open call now and we encourage you or your communities to, uh, to apply so that we'll be able to choose soon which six localities we'll be able to bring the, bring the training to. And I can offer you more information on that, uh, uh, on that offline. And the, the last thing that is new that we're doing this year is a, an advanced cohort. So if you think of the first um, onboarding institute as the 101, we're doing almost a 301 year-long program of supporting organizations that are already developing a strategy, that have learned about finance, that are now looking at how to engage with it. Um, and we will be offering uh, in-person training, support, mentoring opportunities with the idea that through these 12 months they would uh, further refine and launch the, the strategy that they have and will be able to present it to the investors, the policymakers and others within our communities to create really those connections, to build that bridge that I was mentioning at the, at the beginning as a way of uh, um, accelerating or turbocharging the initiatives that belong to the um, social justice leaders or to the frontline organizations that are, that are doing this. So again, if you, um, if you know folks or if you are in an organization that has a strategy around capital um, and you would like to, to explore this further, please be in touch around, um, around that. And I will jump in here and there to, to tie what I've said so far to some of the work that we've been doing directly with uh, Democratizing Capital East Bay and um, in Boston with the uh, Solidago Foundation and Boston Ujima Project uh, um, to, to bring this more technical aspect of the, uh, of the knowledge to communities and look specifically at how you can tie the mission piece of the of the work to the realities of how it gets operationalized in the governance of a of a fund. So let's keep in mind, in particular, that aspect around the governance conversation today. Right? We're not saying that uh, frontline activists necessarily need to learn how to underwrite a deal from uh, from scratch, but we think that there are many opportunities where at least the the, the top level and mid level governance piece over a fund. Uh, can be directly held by the community membership. And Nomaka will now walk us through the, uh, the importance, really, of, the, uh, of that piece, of the, of the political decision-making uh, resting in communities. And uh, Jeff will help us understand how that gets put into practice in the work of these uh, funds. So with that, Amaka, I'm going to turn the controls over to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and thank you for all the great work that you do in this area. Thank you, Andrea, um, and thank you, everybody. And just, um, so thanks, everybody, for giving me the opportunity to kind of share a little bit about the work that I've been doing, and I'm really excited to be able to share it with Transform Finance's um, network of investors. Um, I wanted to first start off by letting you all know that part of what I'm going to spend the next roughly 20 to 25 minutes walking you through um, is first being able to tell you a little bit about myself, 
um, and the framework that I work within called restorative economics and why I think it's important um, for the type of work um, that many of us are talking about right now. Um, and then we'll use the last part of my piece to go into some case studies of some specific projects that I've had the pleasure of working with and being able to speak to them from the community perspective. And then I have just about one slide to just kind of share some reflections that, have I, that I've had over the past some years of doing this work. Um, but first, I want to let you guys know a little bit about who I am. Um, my name is Amaka Agba, um, as Andreas said, and um, I come from a longtime social justice organizing background um, here in the Bay Area. Um, and one of the things I started to notice um, early on in my organizing work is that, you know, after we would turn out community members to to speak at city council meetings, to turn out to protests and rallies. Um, to even work on policy, a lot of the decisions that were being made that impacted low-income communities of color were actually being made before the policy was even drafted. And these were conversations that were kind of happening in back rooms around people who really understood the finances of a particular policy, of a particular decision, um, and were making decisions that impacted the lives of other people um, in low-income communities of color. And what was also really clear is that the communities that I was organizing actually didn't have access to that same information, didn't actually understand how the chips were being dealt around the poker table and what the overall um, impact would be for them. Um, so early on, I was uh, fortunate enough to work with Transform Finance to start to learn about the field of impact investing. And one of the things that was really helpful um, early on in my work is recognizing that as much as we're organizing communities to push back against the forces shaping um, shaping their neighborhoods, they also were eager to not only articulate a vision for what they want for their communities, but were really hungry for the technical skills to go around implementing them. And so my work is um, I provide project management support and strategic advice to community-owned, community-governed projects. Those initiatives in which communities are coming together to wrestle with the hard questions of what it takes um, to actually lead a development effort in their community and lead it in a way that actually creates shared prosperity. And so to kick us off, um, the framework of restorative economics that I use is rooted deeply in a reparations framework. Um, as a piece of context, um, in 1971, Lewis Powell, who eventually became a Supreme Court justice, created a document called um, the Powell Memo. And essentially, it served as a blueprint for how corporations were expected to grow and end up actually shaping our democracy. And so decades later, we can actually see how things like that are at play with laws like Citizens United um, and so many other things that are kind of impacting our broken democracy system. And I lift that up because the Powell Memo shows a deliberate attempt to actually undermine democracy um, and take away people's ability to have autonomy um, over their livelihood. And so restorative economics is a call for us to be just as intentional in understanding what it takes to reinvest resources back into the most impacted communities and being able to use a restorative justice lens that's really focused on accountability, reconciliation, and restitution recognizing that we've had policies and practices over decades that have denied people um, access to economic opportunities that allow them to build a dignified life for themselves. 
So restorative economics is a way of centering the most impacted people in both the design, the process, and outcomes of any particular development project to ensure that they actually have the means um, to then have self-determination over their livelihood. The other reason this is important is because um, for those of us that are engaged in what's referred to as the emerging new economy movement, what's become evident is that those that have access to the leisure time, the flexible capital, and the risk tolerance are those that are actually able to kind of start these new social entrepreneurship ventures. And so when we're not intentional about who's getting the resources and how those resources are being invested, the new economy movement um, inadvertently might only help to widen the racial wealth gap. So restorative economics is once again a call for us to reinvest resources back into the communities that most need them have been most impacted so that we all get to move forward to a more just and equitable community together. And so to start off, um, the framework that I use is really rooted in a lens of community ownership plus community governance to create self-determination, shared prosperity, and sovereignty, and really rests on this notion that power um, comes in three facets. It's political power, cultural power, and economic power. To dig into community ownership a bit more, um, we have a really amazing opportunity to really figure out how are we investing resources back into the most impacted communities in a way that is actually creating shared prosperity, in a way that's creating community wealth, rather than continuing to prop up a model of individual riches where wealth and control is consolidated within one person. As we are looking to the field of impact investing to grow, there's ways for us to think about how we are investing resources so it's actually redistributing wealth for the communities that need it most. This other piece of community governance, which um, Andrea also spoke to earlier, is really important um, because, once again, our democracy is broken. We can see with voter suppression laws and other policies and practices that there's ways in which we try to undermine an individual's ability to have, say, an autonomy over their lives. And we've also kind of limited them to this, uh, you know, just turn out and vote every election. And so the work of restorative economics is trying to figure out how do we actually help people to become active daily stewards of their community? How do we move from a model of ownership and in control to one of stewardship, stewardship of resources and assets for the well-being of our community overall? And understanding that once again, when we put these two things together, that's where we're able to build political, cultural, and economic power. And so to kind of dig into um, this uh, triumvirate um, of power building that I was speaking to earlier, um, to start at the top, and we could actually start in any direction, um, but to start with cultural power, cultural power is is essentially who has the ability and the capacity to determine what norms and traditions are normalized within society. Um, I think we can look most recently in our country's history and see that we've had policies like the Black Codes, um, Jim Crow, housing covenants, redlining, that have impacted people's ability um, to really uh, be able to create a life for themselves. We could even look at ju just recently, um, I think it's fairly recently, um, the Supreme Court actually legalizing gay marriage, right? So who has the ability to say what are the norms and traditions of our community? When people have access um, to actually determine uh, those norms and traditions, they usually also then have the ability to have economic power. 
Um, and so to keep going with the idea of the black codes, um, the black codes and Jim Crow segregation, redlining um, and housing covenants were a specific deliberate attack to keep black people from being able to purchase homes and generate economic power, which then also impacts their ability to shape the political system. Because yes, um, as we know, people are in theory allowed to vote um, in every election um, locally and federally, um, but what we've also seen is the deliberate attack to under, undermine people's ability to then exert their political power. So being able to understand that when we build economic power, political power, and cultural power, that is actually where self-determination happens. We want to really be lifting up projects that are focused in on how are we not just creating shared prosperity um, through community assets in a particular place, but how is that asset actually connected to and leveraged in order to build the political power of that community to have more say and autonomy um, over what they want their neighborhood to look like? And how does that go again, go back into once again reinforcing the cultural power that many of us seek and interested in having? And so to just kind of dig quickly into the cultural power piece, um, we currently have economy that's focused on, that has the habits and practices of extraction, exclusion, um, accumulation, and control of wealth, right? These are unconscious ways that our economy has been structured and unconscious ways that we actually see embedded in policies and practices. The subprime mortgage crisis um, being one of the most recent things that we can look back at. And so in order to actually create a more just and equitable economy, once again, we have to be able to identify what are the specific strategies or embodied practices that we actually want to lift up. What does it look like for us to move from extraction to regeneration, from exclusion to inclusion, from accumulation to shared prosperity, and then from control to deep democracy? And then understanding that this level of transformation that, yes, it happens on the cultural, the structural, and institution level, it happens on the federal government and statewide government level, but then that there are also ways for us as individuals on the internal and interpersonal level to also figure out what are the small shifts, what are the small practices that we can start to make that actually start to embody the values that we want to see in our communities and our economy overall. So understanding that the work is just much about shifting systems as it is about shifting our own ways of being as individuals. And then political power. I think we are in a moment um, as a country, and I would dare say even as a world, where even the notion um, of one vote is insufficient, one vote for one person is insufficient to address the level of exclusion, degradation, and extraction that we see um, in low-income impacted communities of color, particularly immigrant communities of color and native communities as well. And so this concept of governing for the whole is the way that I work with some of the projects um, that I support, really being able to identify who is the impacted population that we want to serve, and how do we actually put that impact, impacted population at the center of our project and make decisions that ensure their well-being um, over time. When we do that, we can actually see that when we make decisions like ensuring that young people in Oakland have shelter, have access to quality housing, 
likeliness is that their friends and family, their neighborhoods, and hopefully the broader community would also have access um, to meaningful shelter. So we could look at issues around transportation, housing, access to quality food and water, um, education, healthcare, as some of the things where we may want to be able to lift up this concept of governing for the whole, governing for the well-being and greater good of all people. Um, and this is to also acknowledge that there are still systems and structures and power dynamics be across that spectrum that we also still need to take into account um, as we look at um, lifting up other governance models. And so once again, this is my work is really rooted in this model of restorative economics, really trying to identify the opportunities for community-owned, community-governed projects. And as I'm working with projects closely, um, spend time to actually help them map out what are the other political, cultural, power building strategies that you have along with this asset that you're building? At the end of the day, I think it's amazing for a group of people to come together um, to own a building together or to steward a plot of land together. And the question, is, the question that we all get to ask ourselves is, how can we actually leverage this to exert our political power and vision for our community to make sure that more people have greater access um, to the, a lot of the resources that we're benefiting from and sharing? And so this is um, a piece that I think is kind of helpful to go into a little bit more when we talk about what does it actually take to redistribute wealth. Um, is that as we're trying to move from extraction and accumulation towards regeneration and redistribution of wealth, the question of collateral, of uh, interest, uh, rate of returns, um, something that I like to lift up. Because ultimately, if we are actually trying to leave more value in the communities that we extract, than we extract wealth is ultimately about power, and right, and who has the power and say over how communities are shaped. And so when we have terms within our investment theses that are actually extracting more wealth, that aids itself to the continued consolidation of control and power. And so power redistribution allows us to actually think about, are we willing to do unsecured loans? What would it take for us to do an unsecured loan? What level of relationship building would we need to have with a community member? Or um, are there other benchmarks like a um, loan loss guarantee that we could actually do to support any losses on a loan? Would we take a lower interest rate? Would we actually have a, a lesser rate of return? And so understanding that when we get to ask ourselves that questions, we're also calling ourselves into understanding to what extent are we actually committed to creating more equity um, between communities and actually giving low-income communities of color more power and authority over the say, the say over their lives. And so once again, redistribution of wealth is ultimately about redistribution of power. And so we just get to be in a place of questioning the terms that we use to engage people around investment practices. And then once again, the other piece to this is that this work doesn't actually happen in a vacuum. This work happens in relationship to other social movements that are happening in our local community or that may be happening nationally or around the globe. Um, but these social movements where people are actually struggling and wrestling for power are the, the thing that actually tills the soil to make it possible for us to actually, as investors and as people support the projects, start to actually take something on that's uh, a little different from what we've seen traditionally. 
And so our work is, we also have the opportunity to figure out how is our work actually connecting back to local social movements on the ground? Are we reinvesting a portion of our profits back into sustaining the organizations that are doing the organizing? Are we ourselves turning out to door knock with them um, on the weekends during your GOT or get out the vote weekend? So we these are just things that we once again get to think about as we're looking to make investments. There's much more um, than the investment memo that we actually need to be looking at. And so to start to go into some of the models for some of the projects that I've had the pleasure of working on, the first one I wanted to start with is a project called Restore Oakland. Um, so Restore Oakland is based out in the Fruitvale neighborhood of East Oakland, um, and it's a joint initiative of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. Um, the Ella Baker Center is a 20-year-old organization now um, that works to end mass incarceration. They come from a history um, of having closed down five out of eight youth prisons in the state of California. Um, and Restaurant Opportunity Centers United um, is also a national organization that works to organize um, workers in the restaurant industry, um, workers both from ranging everything from fast food to high-end fine dining. And so these two organizations came together to create a center um, that focuses in on the impact of populations of formerly incarcerated individuals, those returning back to their communities, and once again, workers in the restaurant industry. So um, the project overall um, is a $16 million project of integrated capital of both grants, um, an acquisition loan, a leverage loan, and new market tax credits. Um, this is a project where we're redeveloping on the inside. The basement um, will be a community training meeting space. Um, the ground floor will actually be a restaurant based off of Rock's um, restaurant colors models. They have a restaurant in Detroit and New York, so Oakland will be um, their first West Coast restaurant. The restaurant will act both as um, a casual fine dining restaurant, but also as a training facility during the day. So in the Bay Area, the restaurant industry is the second largest industry and the fastest growing industry currently. So the restaurant industry is really well primed to provide people with access to good quality jobs, particularly in an area that's so impacted by gentrification displacement. Being able to have access to good quality jobs um, is one of the ways we help to keep people rooted and anchored in community. Um, and then the upstairs floor will also provide space for restorative justice programming. Restorative justice being lifting, lifted up as an indigenous, and uh, traditionally an indigenous practice that brings people together to collectively resolve conflict. Um, and this being as an alternative to um, mass incarceration and over-policing in communities, which we know disproportionately impacts the black and brown communities. So these two organizations traditionally um, do lots of grassroots organizing, do policy and advocacy work, are not uh, community developers. But over years of policy research and advocacy, what they heard from their base was the importance of actually having a space where people can come together to have access to meaningful skills, um, where people can actually come together to organize in a safe space um, to be able to then figure out how they go back out into the community and implement a lot of the great things that they're learning at the center. Um, the other piece I would lift up that's um, also really important about Restore Oakland is that this is a space that will also provide access to non affordable nonprofit um, office space in the Bay Area. 
Um, and so once again, with our real estate market being what it is, not only the cost um, of purchasing real estate, but redevelopment, um, it's extremely hard for nonprofits to be able to stay um, in Oakland. Um, so being able to have a space committed um, to long-term uh, office space for nonprofits is essential. Um, one, some of the lessons learned that I'll share about Restore Oakland is um, when, we initially, when I initially started working on this project back in 2015, we had kind of hoped we'd be open in a year or two. Um, and what we've learned is that it takes quite a long time and a lot of money to do the type of projects that build the type of long-term institutions that we want to see in our community. And I lift this up because when we talk about patient capital, this is the type of patient capital that we're looking to. Patient capital that provides communities with the capacity building planning dollars that they need to actually take a project from design to inception. Um, and also being able to engage with um, the high school technical experts that make the project possible. Something that I often like to share about Restore Oakland um, is that this project actually uh, used half a million pro bono legal dollars to make it possible. And this is because we needed legal support both on real estate acquisition, tax and accounting, um, and all the things that come up when you're trying to purchase and develop a property. Um, so just the, the cost of what it takes to make these projects possible is significant. And being able to have investors that understand that and are willing to support the project over the long term is really important. Another project um, that I've been had the pleasure to work on um, has been the Buen Vivir Fund. I am a board member of Thousand Currents. Um, Thousand Currents is a grassroots intermediary um, organization that does grant making in the global south. Um, and back in 2016, um, Thousand Currents brought together both its partners, um, its grantees as they're typically referred to, but uh, Thousand Currents, we refer to them as our partners, um, and investors to actually meet in Mexico City to actually dream up what would it look like to actually create, um, to co-create the Buen Vivir Fund, a fund that's actually rooted in ensuring good quality life and well-being for all people. Um, and this was also a gathering that um, Transform Finance uh, joined to support as well. Some of the key core values to the Buen Vivir Fund in the work um, are to really lift up the importance of diversity as strength. Um, we brought together partners from Guatemala, um, Mexico, Nepal, South Africa, and so many other places, as well as our um, investors and funders from the global north, to really engage in a conversation, bringing a lot of the different wisdom and expertise that we all bring to this work. Um, also, the gathering was really rooted in interconnection. So really focusing in on developing the quality of relationships that are required to actually see transformation. And that, that is a core responsibility um, of the work of the Buen Vivir Fund, to develop relationships um, between people that don't typically have an opportunity to engage with one another. And then also recognizing the active healing of this part, um, of this work. Um, and I think this speaks to the elements of uh, restorative economics as well by recognizing a lot of hurt and harm has been done to communities um, through the way that capital has been used as a tool for oppression. And so being able to actually engage in a process that allows people to explore their own healing. And that also once again lifts up the collective wisdom of the group, recognizing the unique experiences we all bring to this space. 
Um, but then also really calling people into being committed to the process. Um, recognizing that we actually can't get to equitable outcomes without an equitable process. And so the process is just as important and something that we need to spend time on um, in order to get to the desired good stuff, um, you know, all the things that we like to see at the end of a project once it's completed. Um, the other piece I'll lift up um, about the Bonvivir Fund is that this is an opportunity for um, investors and grant and grantees or slash partners to come together to co-create a fund. Um, this has been a place where typically um, investors are very are referred to as those that are making the financial in investments into a project. Um, but one of the things that was really clear in that initial convening, and one of the things the partners called us into, um, is that they are also investing knowledge, expertise, and wisdom into the project as well. So understanding that in this case, they are actually all investors. And part of what the Buen Revere Fund is seeking to do is how do we invisibilize a lot of the other forms of investment um, that are invisibilized um, when doing a deal. A lot of the other forms of risk that communities take on, the wisdom and knowledge that they bring to the table. And some of the things that I think are really interesting about um, the Buen Revere Fund, first, um, and looking closely at the governance model, um, typically funds will have a, a board of directors. Um, this is a place where the Buen Revere Fund has really lifted up the members' assembly, a members' assembly that brings together um, the grassroots partners um, and the investors to all come together to collectively make decisions about what gets passed on and what receives um, investment. Um, also de designing the fund so that the investors are actually assuming, the financial investors are actually assuming the risk. Um, so that if um, an invest a borrower is not able to make their investment back, um, that we're actually not taking away their car or doing other some form of some other form of collateral that once again creates more harm. Um, there's also this concept of aportes um, that Thousand Currents and Buen Vivir has lifted up. We typically refer to this as interest. Um, what Buen Vivir has really called us into is recognizing um, that if uh, an investor, a financial investor, puts $100 into a fund and receives $100, that's actually a 100% return on their investment. Anything beyond that is what they refer to as an aportes, something, uh, an additional gift that they're making back into the project. And rather than returning that additional gift or that aportes back to the investor, being able to take that money and actually put into it, put it into a cycle of investment or a passe cardo, as they call it in Haiti, where you're actually passing that money forward. Um, we actually refer to it as setting up a revolving loan fund. Um, but being really intentional that any any additional money that is made um, actually goes back into the fund to support investments in future projects. And once again, recognizing that this work is about impact for all. We actually want both the financial investors um, and the partners to actually walk away with Buen Vivir, an improved quality of life overall. Some things that are um, super helpful to as we talk about community governance and what it looks like, um, but also once again lift up this piece of the member assembly, um, so everybody comes together to make decisions um, related to the investments and the growth and design of the fund. The fund management team is actually supported um, by Thousand Current staff, um, so they're responsible for implementing a lot of the decisions made by the member assembly. 
There's also a small groups and project support team that is created to come together uh, to support the projects and actually um, helping to answer questions, helping to strengthen their business model, ensuring um, that they're actually on track um, to meet the terms of their loan. And then also having ally advisors, um, so those that bring particular knowledge and expertise around investments and loans that can also support the projects. Some stuff um, I just quickly want to tease about the Bon Vivir Fund um, is that in terms of the aportes or interest rates, it's a range from 1.75% to 10%. So the projects are the ones that actually come and say, this is how much we think we can return back to the Bon Vivir Fund over time. The initial investor um, to join the fund um, investment was $125,000. Um, and so Early on, 1,000 Currents was able to get eight investors to commit to the project. They made their first set of investments in 2018, which is a combination of $113,000 in grants um, and then $427,000 in investments. The remaining $460,000 will actually be held for the second round um, of investments um, that will happen uh, later on this year or early next year. And so those are kind of some highlights of the Buen Vivir Fund, which, which you can learn more about on the Thousand Currents webpage. Um, now I want to start, <laughs> I realize I'm going a little over time, so I'm going to try to move through it. Um, so then the other project that I actually um, have had the pleasure of working closely with Solidago Foundation on and Transform Finance on has been Democratizing Capital East Bay. Um, Democratizing Capital East Bay is an initiative that was started to be envisioned in 2015 um, over in the Bay Area. And it's an opportunity to actually figure out, can we bring together positive impact investments from both high net worth and non-accredited investors? Can we also engage um, alternative economic practitioners, so those that are exploring cooperative business models, B Corps, community governance projects? And can we link them to social movements, all as a way of actually creating a just transition towards a more resilient and local economy? Um, so the goal of democratizing Capital East Bay is to actually leverage the creation of a community patient capital fund um, that uses non-extractive investments um, and creates a democratic economy as a way of uh, creating a more just and equitable local economy. Um, the guiding values and principles um, of this work are deeply rooted in solidarity um, politics, um, and a lot of this is very similar to the work of the Buen Vivir Fund as well. So looking at non-extractive investments, really ensuring a commitment to racial justice and equity um, through the investment uh, investments that are made. And the investment thesis really figuring out, can we actually take high transaction cost relationships Higher risk investments um, are those enterprises that are traditionally seen as higher risk, particularly those um, that are owned by um, individuals of color and women, um, and provide them with the long-term high-risk patient capital that they need to be successful um, in the long term. And can we move them along a spectrum of improving their business and business practices um, so they're actually helping to seed a just transition? Um, and some of the desired outcomes um, are really being able to work with businesses to figure out can we engage a set of um, can we engage a set of their returns um, and reinvest it back into the community? Can we also connect businesses to being a part of local systemic change? 
for example, what would it look like to um, invest in a business and then be able to organize their employers and their owners and their customers to engage in local community outreach events, to engage in um, local policies that are happening on the ground? And can we grow the number of high road employers that support um, the creation of a just transition local economy? The partners early on came together and developed a set of mission criteria to really determine what are the type of businesses that um, we would like to invest in and support. And so the criteria really touches on issues around governance and workplace democracy, looking closely at the uh, supply chain, um, ensuring that there's climate justice and environmental sustainability, both in the products, but also in the procurement um, of the business itself, um, and then being really deeply invested in workplace well-being and dignity. Um, the projects came together and have will design a, a rubric. And so for businesses that don't meet this criteria off the bat, we, are, we hope to keep them engaged and work with them over a period of time to actually improve their practices as opposed to just kind of shutting them out and actually saying that there's no space for them. So we've also been fortunate to work with a number of uh, stakeholders that have helped us think through the design and creation of uh, democratizing capital East Bay. So being able to have community-based organizations like Bali Urban Strategies Council, um, also working with uh, non-traditional businesses in the East Bay that have also experimented with some of these um, community governance models like Mandela Foods Cooperative, and then also engaging with financial institutions to help us think through how do we structure the fund and the elements of it um, so that we can actually get to um, the high-risk investments um, for the businesses that we want to support. Um, we're fortunate enough to have a set of both grassroots partners, so grassroots um, organizations that do organizing here in the Bay Area to support the work. Um, and these partners are responsible for a lot of the governance mechanisms in the fund. So both the oversight of the fund administrator, determining the governance structure, development of the mission criteria. We also have a set of um, foundation partners like Saladaga Foundation that have also really been taking the lead on the design and structure of the Community Patient Capital Fund itself um, and helping with uh, raising the capital um, for that fund. Um, just to kind of delve into the what this community governance process looks like is we would first create an application process where uh, potential applicants that would like to receive money from the fund would then do a self-assessment to determine whether they pass or don't meet the criteria. Um, and then have create a subcommittee from the grassroots partners to determine the mission alignment of the fund once an application is actually submitted. And then the subcommittee actually determines which applicants get passed on to the fund administrator for the due diligence and underwriting process. And from there, the subcommittee continues the ongoing oversight um, and management of the fund administrator itself. So really being able to delve into what are the elements that make it possible to have a community-governed capital fund um, where the community is actually determining how investments are getting made um, in its community overall. Um, one of the pieces I want to really lift up about democratizing capital East Bay, which goes back into that um, triumphant of power, 
is that once again, this is a project where the raising of a community capital fund is important, but what we're also really trying to experiment is what is possible when communities have access to a fund that they can then leverage to continue to advance a lot of the political work that those grassroots partners are doing on the ground. So in terms of um, catalyzing impact, um, Andrea kind of really spoke to the role of the investors for being able to de-risk de projects by providing them access to grant dollars or patient capital capital for capacity building, human development, pre-development dollars. Um, there's also a need to really identify and grow a network of values-aligned technical assistance providers. Oftentimes, um, what I've seen in many projects is we can find a legal team or an accountant and tell them that our desire for a project, and then they'll come back to us and tell us you can't do that. Well, we actually want to work with projects or, or work with um, technical assistance providers that can help us figure out how can we actually make this work possible? How can you work with us to actually help us implement our vision for a more equitable community? Um, and then really being able to really figure out how do we recognize the human, natural, and civic capital that's invested into a project as much as the financial investments that are made overall and really lifting up the importance of experimentation. We need to catalyze experimentation as much as we would any other sector like the tech sector in order to actually get to the models that create more justice and equity overall. I'm gonna hand it off to Jeff. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Maka, for this uh, great presentation. And uh, let me uh, hand it over to Jeff Rosen, who is CFO of the uh, of the Solidago Foundation, and will tell us a little bit about his experience with um, uh, with several funds and how we got to this point of really deeply uh, embedding the the governance piece uh, within the context of a of a community fund. Excellent. So, um, as Andrea mentioned, I'm the CFO for the Solidago Foundation, and we have a long history in this space. And we have a long programmatic history around trying to use grant making um, to make a better world. We all define our own better world. And I've been with the foundation for 15 years, um, and I've been in the impact investing space for about 14 and a half. We have a long history of being interested in deploying our endowment. Our story in philanthropy is a little different um, than a lot of other philanthropic partners that we work with in that um, from our founding, we've always been really interested in using the full set of our assets um, to advance our programmatic vision. And so it's just sort of one of these questions when you listen to people as inspiring as Amaka and Andrea, why can't we finance the world we want to see? Um, and so I'll talk a little bit today trying to tie some of the bigger vision picture work that Amaka has laid out that Andrea has worked on through Transform Finance on how we get it um, nuts and bolts like onto the ground. You know, some of it comes back to what's the right rate of return of capital. Um, for some people, there is no right rate of returns, just as much as you can produce. And for others, it looks like whatever has been the historical rate of return has been too high and that it has created all sorts of environmental issues by extracting natural resources and social issues by extracting community resources in the way that Maka framed it out for us. Um, so I'm also trained as an economist. Um, I don't come from a finance background. I come more from um, having worked in restaurant industry, having had my own business, being an economist, and sort of just being relentlessly persistent. Um, I'm not the visionary in this space. I just keep on trying to figure out, well, why can't we use capital to build the world we want to build? 
And yet there's a lot of thesis out there as to why this kind of intervention in market failure is not a good idea. I, I don't accept any of those. Um, I don't think market failure is really an applicable concept. Um, and having been in the impact investing space now for 14 years, I also sit on the board of Confluence Philanthropy, which is a philanthropic affinity group focused on moving more impact investment. Um, we're all concerned with what it takes to really move more impact investment, and we all define that differently. And in this conversation, I'll talk about the niche that we occupy in that definition. Um, but what we see is there's some capital gaps. They're not market failures. They're just places where capital is not going to flow in the current system, and we have to figure out what we can do to catalyze capital to show up in that system because we're driven by the end user needs um, that Amaka and others have laid out. What's the structure, the process, the who and the how matter of trying to bring capital to more end users who are currently primarily starved of capital that would work for them. Um, so I borrow a fair bit of our work from others, um, many of whom have more resources and time. I do this on the side as part of my CFO function here. Um, and one of the most I think well-organized and insightful places to look for information is through the Benefit Chicago model. And, you know, they, they help to really lay out the argument for why end users need more flexible patient capital. And everyone uses a different design process, and we'll see a little bit at the end of the presentation how many different products and processes are currently emerging. Um, but in terms of what the issues are, I think we have a shared set of identifying um, that there's some set of capital in the world that really seeks only financial return, and then there's a spectrum of capital that seeks different layers of return, some of which is all about impact, some of which is about a blended impact. We talk about terms like integrated capital, which might be trying to mix and match different terms. Um, well, we all identify when we're driven by end users that there's a gap in this kind of long-term patient capital. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of conversation in the impact investing space that the issue is really there's no good deals. There's no real opportunity. Um, we're not starting from that thesis. We believe that there are tremendous amount of good deals and there's a lot of deals that will help to um, tip the scales in terms of social and racial justice investing in communities that have been underserved by capital historically, um, but that they need capital that will work for them and we have to figure that out. Um, and so as Benefit Chicago's process identified um, through a publication they put out, Bridging the Gap, um, values-based social entrepreneurs, low-income people of color with um, less traditional track records um, typically need more flexible capital. Um, they need capital that has traditionally looked like it has more risk embedded in it, longer duration, and typically lower rates. Although our experience is the rate is one of the the smaller drivers in uh, creating this fund that fills a capital gap process. Um, the other thing from a philanthropic perspective is um, what I've seen emerge is a tremendous amount of interest in impact capital. Everyone's defining that differently and welcome to define that differently, but certainly um, over the last 10, 15 years, the idea of impact investing and interest in um, deploying some portion of assets, philanthropic individual assets, pension assets, and something that would be called impact capital, that continues to grow. Um, and what we see on the other side is the demand for impact capital, however you define it, continues to grow for nonprofits, social enterprises, social entrepreneurs of all ilks. Um, but we haven't figured out how to bridge the two. And so most of our work um, described well by Maka on the vision and value side is about bridging the two. 
And from a values proposition to philanthropy and to others, I would say that's cheaper than trying to build the two movements, which are kind of emerging in parallel on their own volition. So uh, Amaka identified some of these um, from a community characteristic as well. What we're looking for are more locally owned and managed businesses, high road employers, um, accounting for externalities in a firm and a supply chain in, in all purchasing and distribution decisions, businesses that produce more basic necessities in community, businesses linked to system change. We're looking to get more of the invested capital, stay in community, more of investment returns, stay in community. So these are sort of the non-negotiable aspects around what a community is looking for as it tries to transition to um, a less globalized economy, one with more autonomy and one with more direction than um, Andre referred to as sort of the centralized financial system, trying to decentralize some of that control. Um, end users have the same need. Um, I don't know if you can see that little image there is from planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, and there's a great scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which um, is an obscure movie from the 80s, somewhat, or maybe 90s, um, where they're going the wrong way on the highway and some well-meaning passerby going the right way is shouting out the window, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. And John Candy and Steve Martin, while going the wrong way on the highway, say, well, how do they know where we're trying to go? Um, and so I think that's been part of the issue around trying to bridge impact investors and really values-driven coordinated funding instruments like DCEB and others is that um, we don't always really know where we're going in, in the same way with each other. Um, and so the community knows where it's going, the impact investor knows where it's going, and we're trying to align those two more closely. So the end users need long-term investment, lower cash burden investment, significant technical assistance, less asset-backed instruments, um, and they really need connection to community as investors and markets both. Um, and a little bit of this, I think, is about taking microfinance lessons um, where people can do a deal on a handshake and bringing that to litigious Western society. What does that look like as a financial instrument? And really trying to understand how community collateral is an asset. It goes to some of the risk sharing that Andrea referenced. Um, how does that become something that really is, can be monetized as an instrument in um, replacing other traditional kinds of risk? And so, at the end of the day, a lot of these instruments are going to look like equity and they're going to be papered like debt. Um, they're going to have the kinds of non-asset-backed um, hold on um, future cash flows, but not hold on um, future profits of a company. And, and one of the other things um, in these funds that Amaka referenced is most of them, we don't want our locally domiciled businesses to have exit strategies. And so that makes... Um, the end user needs of staying in place creates financial instrument challenges. So filling the capital gap, what do communities and end users need from impact investors? Um, I describe this as if you start with the financial instrument first, um, you lose people at each of these pinch points. Um, and this is a somewhat cynical view of the impact investing space and that none of these are really crowded spaces. Um, we go from like one isolated person to a few and back. Um, and we're still sort of waiting for the space to really fill out, um, not so much with interest. I think the interest is a crowded space, but the deployment, particularly deployment um, along lines of really trying to finance racially just um, instruments where we're going to be in place, uh, that, that's still lagging. Um, 
but the impact investors, um, when you look at the products we're going to describe, they need to be longer term. They're going to have less liquidity than investments at traditional risk. They're going to come with higher transaction costs, higher risk. And, you know, the impact thesis is not that well proven yet either. Um, there's been a lot of community economic development work over the years, and part of our thesis um, builds upon that, which is saying there's just a capital gap alongside of agency, community economic development money, CDFI money, and unfortunately where that capital gap starts is really where the constituents that we're trying to serve um, have their capital needs. But there's not really a body of evidence that says that, you know, at some point in time these values aligned community governed funds are going to produce X return on investment from a social basis either. And so it's a little hard to make the argument from a financial basis or even from a discounted financial basis you really have to go back and make the argument from the end user basis. And if this is what we're trying to do, advance a socially just transformation, well, then what does the product have to look like? Um, there's a lot of other ways, Andrea mentioned a few, um, where aggregated capital um, is not the solution. For us, we're focused on that as a solution. So we look for aggregated capital to be managed by a professional intermediary that's built into the solution set um, we feel like, as Andrea mentioned, we don't really want our um, community activists to become experts in business. We want them to be experts in mission and follow through. And it's our thesis that um, the community is best served by having professional financial engineers working in partnership. It's been our own experience, as I'll describe briefly through the PB Grows model, um, that a nonprofit structure works well when you're also trying to bring non-accredited investors into a fund. There's a lot of SEC hurdles. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles in all of this work. Um, and so we've experienced nonprofit structure being one that gets over a few of them. Um, our preferences for financial intermediaries with roots in community, many of whom have probably already been doing lending. They just haven't been doing their lending or investing in any form with as flexible capital. Um, so we look to the CDFI community that has relationships, has infrastructure built. Um, but has always had to use CRA money or less flexible capital that um, affords them less risk taking. You know, the thesis here is work with that partner, bring them impact investors who are willing to take on more of that risk and um, then we can fill a capital gap that maybe ideally will move people um, into more traditional investment opportunities. And there's philanthropic support required for this. Um, it, it's our experience that these things aren't going to happen by magic. There's reasons that um, these capital gaps exist, but it's a very high value proposition for philanthropy to build these bridges, to continue to support them, and to bring new capital to communities um, that have been underserved. Um, we feel like in our model, there's always going to be a network coordinator that has to be grant funded sitting in the middle of this because, again, things don't just happen um, by good intention. They have to happen with resources. What we talked about in our early days with PV Grows is if you just have somebody to send the email and buy the coffee, um, your project has a lot higher opportunity for success than if you're counting on all volunteers who are all busy um, and have good intentions but don't have the resources to follow through. Um, and as Maka mentioned in the model too, we feel like um, community organizing groups need to be paid for their time to advance this work. And they need to be paid fairly and they need to be paid at a sufficient enough level that you're not asking some full-time community organizer to now add another piece of work. You really need to be able to fund your community partners at a significant level where it's somebody's part-time job or full-time job to make this commitment and to provide the dedication to really 
give the authentic community voice the time to prosper. So I'll talk a little bit about the PV Grows model, which is a local food model, and then I'll transition to Democratizing Capital East Bay, talk about the difference in the structures, the difference in the place that leads to different structures and intents. Um, and then I'll wrap up by talking about a couple of other different models that we've been collaborating with in this space. So the Pioneer Valley of Western Mass um, is a somewhat segmented community. Um, it has rural attributes in the northern side. It has very urban attributes in its southern side. There's something here that we refer to as the tofu curtain or the tofu divide. Um, oh, it's on Wikipedia, according to Pierre, who's sitting with me. Um, and so um, we focused this model really as a philanthropic partner. We focused on financing the local food system, which we felt at the time was really catalyzed um, by a movement that was very strong and that um, coming out of a lot of slow money conversations and post-Occupy Wall Street conversations, um, we thought that by bringing some patient, flexible capital to a movement, we could really catalyze it. Um, so we were trying to fill a capital gap in a local food system that was very strong. The thesis was the size of deals in this twenty-five dollars to $250,000 range, the terms of the term sheets weren't there, and that if we could bring this, um, we could regrow a infrastructure, a business infrastructure that had once been strong in the region, um, but had been dismantled as this food system had become increasingly globalized. Um, we were also very interested in bringing non-accredited investors into this. Um, and for us as a philanthropic partner, we're always experimenting with innovation and we want to leave a footprint for others so they can build on. This particular project um, was really driven more by investment partners. Um, so we had a number of financial intermediaries in the space, many of whom were already doing food deals and reasonably asked the question of like, why are we trying to aggregate and coordinate more capital when deal flow was a big issue here? Um, and we felt like it was important to get some community capital organized, get capital ahead in time of what we hope would be an expansive demand for that capital, which has been the case, I'd say, more or less. Um, we're really seeing the demand increase and we're glad that we've created the structure. Um, we've had three philanthropic partners, Lydia Stokes, Kendall Foundation, and Solidago. Um, in addition, we've had some community-based partners, the Department of Ag Resources from Massachusetts, New England Small Farms, CESA, and then the lending partners, um, two of whom have served as the financial intermediaries. Western Mass Enterprise Fund is now Common Capital, and Franklin County CDC, who is now the ongoing um, financial intermediary for the project, and for whom we created a supporting organization structure. So what we saw in the initial model was that money was not making its way from local investors to local food businesses in any way. There's disruption there, and that was really an important part of this particular design function. The product looks like, um, as Amaka and um, Andrea referenced, a multiple tranche model where we try and line people up with the appropriate risk for them. Um, so it requires grant making. We don't want the Franklin County CDC to push um, spread onto the borrower and to make money by having a six or seven percent spread, which is really what's needed in this space, based on the lower dollar cost of the loans and the um, higher touch. Um, so we've used grant making to subsidize the administrative costs. We have a first loss fund. We initially designed that to secure community investors because we did not want community investors to be exposed to risk. And we have a patient capital pool with an eight-year target return of 4% IRR. Um, all the investors in that fund know that's a target return, that most of these investments are not secured. 
This is a sequestered standalone fund. It has no recourse to the assets of the Franklin County CDC balance sheet. And so it's possible um, those investors will not see 4%. It's possible they'll lose money. Um, we tried in our offering memorandum to make that clear. I'll reference Boston Impact Initiative a little bit later on, whose offering memorandum is much more clear um, that you know the goal is to finance a set of constituents who have needs um, and the investors are there to do that and might lose money along the way. Um, you know, we hope by design to mitigate that risk, but we want to make that clear that this is about fulfilling a need in the capital market from the end user perspective, not from the impact investor perspective. Um, so we've invested in a variety of businesses and we're really seeing the deal flow start to increase. There's going to be a new tranche offered. Um, as we've reached the end of the investment phase for the first offering, we're going to come up with a second offering. The Franklin County CDC is spearheading that effort. Um, but invest in a variety of local food initiatives, some of which are bringing food um, to underserved communities, but a lot of which around here still have kind of that boutique food profile, um, and it's something we're looking to change in the, in the next iteration. Um, so. For democratizing capital, East Bay, where racial justice and getting access to capital for low-income people of color were really at the very forefront of the design phase, the community engagement looks different. Um, the community activist groups have a very different profile, and they're going to maintain a sense of governance um, that the PV Grows groups really have not to date had. We're, we're looking to redesign the product and bring more um, focus to racial justice and racial equity in both production and access. Um, but it, it's after the initial design of the PV Grows model. It was at the forefront of the design for DCEB, as Amaka described it. Um, we've had other funders in the mix in the early phases. California Endowment and Common Council were very helpful in the early design. And what we look to is a larger funder collaborative, a larger learning space, because we're hopeful that this is um, going to be something that goes to other places as well. So the DCB products are going to differ from PV grows a little bit. Um, we will probably still have four tranches. We're going to need a grant-making tranche. The first loss money may go in a different direction, maybe in part to support community investors, but it also might be to support higher-risk businesses at an early stage, um, consistent with some of the characteristics of what we imagine would be viable businesses who are, um, appear to be higher risk, and we'd like the community to be able to have the authority to define risk a little bit more thoroughly. Um, we suspect that the patient capital, what we're looking for is a $10 million fund, all told. Um, we'll probably have a $10,000 minimum on the patient capital. For the PV Grows Fund, we um, maxed out what the non-accredited investor could do because we wanted to have more diverse non-accredited investors. I imagine we'll do the same here. Um, we'll probably target a similar IRR, and we will be very clear that the function of this impact investment is to serve the needs of the end users from a mission criteria, from a structure, and that that could result in losses. Uh, ideally, it won't. Ideally, some of this thesis will prove out um, and that we'll actually be able to provide a positive return to investors. Building a little bit on Buena Vivir and other thoughts, if it's permissible and legal, I haven't done the research yet, ideally, maybe we would also look for a 1% donation um, out of that target IRR, maybe over the life of it, maybe in the last year. Um, to go to fund a revolving loan fund with capital that the community would actually have um, not only governance over, but ownership of in some way. Um, and the community investors, we looked to probably about a $2 million pool with a 10K max, three or five year term, 2% interest. Ideally, we would like to have a very low minimum for community investors, but all of these things, as we've worked through with the community groups and with Transform Finance's help, 
These are practical issues, um, and so we have to be able to say, well, this is the cost of a $100 minimum, this is the cost of a $1,000 minimum. Who's going to pay for that difference? Um, and who's going to manage more investors at, at lower dollar values? Um, it's our commitment to really try and bring that down. Um, so I just wanted to conclude a little bit with some of the similar initiatives that we see going on right now. Um, Boston Ujima project, Aaron Tanaka's work, um, is part of the Solidarity Economy Initiative. It's, it's a very deep learning community. It's a very deep um, learning community for its participants and in Aaron's project, um, the investors are probably going to have more say to work um, for DCB, and it's just great to partner with them, and, and we can share that together. Benefit Chicago, as I've mentioned, um, really launched by MacArthur Foundation, partnering with Calvert Foundation, to, um, which is a really efficient model because that allows the smaller community investor easy access to a, a low-dollar investment in the product. Um, they also are partnering with Chicago Trust. They've created their own financial intermediary, um, and, and they did not really root their project at the outset as much in community design as Boston Ujima, DCB. Boston Impact Initiative, which now has an offering memorandum um, and has a very clear offering language um, that the focus of the fund, it's really inspiring to me, the work that Mark Watson, Deborah Fries have done there um, and is partnering with Boston Ujima. Buen Vivir Fund, um, which I'm not going to some details on. Uh, Andrea, maybe you know more about Spark, um, and we're also involved um, in projects that have yet to really focus on the aggregated capital piece, but other aspects of the independent political organizations, leading movement conversations, and really interested in um, having more community control over capital are happening that we know of, at least in Grand Rapids, Chattanooga, Albuquerque, Buffalo, um, other places, um, Bali, who, with whom we've partnered, also um, can speak to other projects in different phases. Um, so, Makisho Buane Vivere. Just really briefly, this is what the Boston Impact Initiative offering looks like. Um, they too have four tranches of investors trying to manage risk, and they've come up with another innovation um, where they manage their risk through senior percentages in the same opportunity. Um, and while I would not um, I call like this, Andrea, I would not advocate for anybody to make an investment, I wouldn't vouch for it. I certainly suggest to people that um, take a chance to look at it. It's so thoughtful, so well done, and inspiring to me. I can turn it back over to you, Andrea. Um. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. And uh, I noticed that uh, we have someone, uh, we have Devin from Spark uh, on the line. Uh, Devin, if you don't mind, I will unmute you for a second if you want to give us a, a minute on how you view some of these um, issues that we've been discussing uh, uh, featuring in the, in the work that Spark has been doing. And if not, no worries. Sure. Yeah, the, the short version is that uh, the Spark model that we, we took, uh, we took our partnership, which includes um, enterprise community partners and low-income investment fund and national CDFIs um, with NRDC and the San Francisco Fed, and we, and we raised um, kind of a, a kit of parts. So we didn't blend the, the, the fund, but we, we pulled together uh, some PRI funds um, a partial guarantee, our TDFI pools, and then a, a capital grant that can that can sit in more of this first loss or, or equity position, um, and then 
started working with, with collaboratives in six places to, to source the, the, the concepts and the, the early stage proposals that were of interest in community and really try to, to and really try to work both ends toward the middle and, and then be able to sort of create um, products that work for each of those deals rather than having a kind of a single blended fund that then gets drawn down in different ways. Um, so one of the things we're working through there is obviously some of the scale issues that, we, that have come up today and, and thinking about how to create the right community infrastructure to support some of this decision making. Um, a lot of the, the credit enhancement is really attached to the, to the CDFI funds and so, so those are all not necessarily blended in a static way but kind of linked whereas the capital grant is really um, been handed over to these collaboratives to make their own decisions about how they want to use those dollars and what sorts of projects they want to put them into. Um, but managing, but managing those dollars, particularly as they start to come back, um, is a bit of a challenge that we've been we've been working through. Fantastic. Thank you very much, uh, Devin. This was uh, Devin Colbertson uh, helping us understand a little bit how um, uh, the Spark program has been uh, um, has been looking at the at the local deployment of um of capital and um let's see uh, if there are no questions uh, please if there are questions please put them in the in the chat function or somehow otherwise get them um, get them to us but I, I do feel like we have covered a lot of uh, material already for for today and in particular as both amaka and um and jeff highlighted it's really a thoughtful intersection of the of the deep mission and the political transformation with the realities of um, of structuring the realities of um, the cost of some of these funds really and the type of technical assistance that is um, that is required for them um, i'm really honored that we as transform finance have been um, able to collaborate in some of this work providing some of the the support in um, in building the bridge between the technical part and that deep community uh, engagement and um, and mission alignment type of uh, type of work. I just want to take a second then to thank our speakers, uh, Jeff Rosen from the Solidago Foundation and Amaka Agbo from uh, Amaka uh, Agbo Consulting. Um, and uh, if uh, there is our contact information is here online uh, on the slide. We'll be happy to share the slides with you if you um, if you would like to have them. Please uh, reach out to us. And uh, if you are interested in learning more about the work of the Transform Finance Investor Network, please contact us. Uh, Kurt Lyons' email is up on the site too. Um, sorry, on that on the slide. And uh, Jeff and Amaka, I will turn it over to you for a closing word, if you'd like, and then we'll uh, then we'll close it out. Well, just um, closing word is Andrea understates the role that Transform Finance has played in all of our work, um, and so the um, the community education piece um, that he's done through Transform Finance in both Oakland and Boston has really been important and I don't think the work could advance without it and we look forward to doing that in more places. Um, you know, the model involves um, education, it involves um, collaboration and, you know, partnership. And I've been fortunate enough in the space to see everybody working in this space happy to collaborate and share. We may all have slightly different vehicles, we may have different thesis, but we're all experimenting together and um, it's great to see the field kind of emerging a little bit, and I, I really thank Transform Finance for its role in that. 
Yeah, what I would add is just kind of thank you to everybody for participating on the webinar. Um, this work is uh, takes a long takes a long time, so it's really exciting to have investors and funders that are committed to being part of the process and kind of engaging in the long term struggle for what it takes to actually create more equity. And so once again, thank you to Transform Finance for bringing us together and providing us an opportunity to talk about a lot of the exciting projects that are emerging. Um, you know, there's innovation on both the community side, um, those that do social movement organizing, and both on the investor side. And the opportunity to kind of bring those um, those two pieces together is where a lot of great transformation can happen. So I'm excited to get to work with Jeff, and I'm always happy to share more about this work. Terrific. Thank you all. And yeah, uh, with the speaker's permission, we will share the slides with you and uh, uh, and the recording for this. If you have other models that you've come across that we have not seen, I hear there's uh, something interesting brewing with uh, La Montañita in, uh, um, in New Mexico, I believe. Maybe you've seen other local models that... Uh, that need to be lifted up, please reach out to us or Andrea at uh, Transform Finance. Um, and uh, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Amaka, and thank you, Jeff, for all the uh, tremendous work that you've been doing really for a really long time and for joining us for this, uh, for this presentation today. Until the next time, take care, everyone.